This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. It's your club and this is your show. Just when you think the world is changing for the better and life could soon get back to normal, Manchester City pop up with a timely reminder that whatever happens at home or abroad, some things will always remain the same and they'll manage to miss a penalty. Welcome to today's Blue Moon podcast where we're looking back over that one old draw with Liverpool. So where do you stand on the game? Was it a good point given the start to the match or was it two points dropped given how Jurgen Klopp's side ended looking shattered with key players missing? Was the game actually there for the taking? Also in today's show, we'll hear the second part of our exclusive interview with former City captain Kit Simons and Howard Hocking is back on the podcast later on as well. I'm David Mooney. With me this week is City fan Chris Higginbottom. Hello. And from BBC Radio Manchester's Talking Balls and Manchester City, it's Kyle Walker, but not that one. <laughs> Hello. How are you doing, Kyle? All good, all good. It's a um, very busy schedule with the football. Uh, the game seems to be coming thick and fast. And yes, we're on an international break right now, but I'm just trying to prepare for the next wave of games because November into December is very, very busy. It is. I, uh, I I wanted to get you to speak there just so people could hear that you're not the other Kyle Walker. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to have to spend the entire the entire show calling you that. So, so it, here we go. Um, Chris, uh, first off, I want to start with you on the uh, on the game against Liverpool. Um, uh, how did you feel? I said in the intro there, was it a point gained or two dropped? What's what's your gut feeling on that game? Uh, well, it's they swing on big moments, games like that, don't they? And you can't help feel to an extent that it's points drops because we've missed a penalty. But at the same time, you can understand the way that after the penalty miss, both teams seem to kind of, you know, settle for playing it out as a, as a point each. I can understand Pep being pragmatic at that point because the worst case scenario of losing the game when chasing it, you know, chasing the points is uh, unthinkable even at this stage of the season, really. Yeah, I was going to say, Kyle. I mean, even at this stage of the season, there's so much of the season left. You don't want it. You don't want to end up what, what would have been eight points beyond Liverpool at this stage. Okay, with a game in hand, but it's still it's still a long gap to make up, isn't it? It is, and we've seen how good Liverpool have been over the past few years and how consistent they've been. Now, this season's obviously very different with everything that's happened in the results we've seen so far. The results that Liverpool have had so far, but with their manager, their players. Yes, they've had a few injuries, but. They're very, very good. They're very consistent and they possess this ability to take every single game one at a time and somehow grind out performances and grind out the wins. So it'll be interesting to see what happens and how much of an impact this result actually has later on down the line. Do you think, I mean, Kyle, do you think City did sacrifice too much, though, in order to protect that point? Because you think, like, late in the second half, if you got got somebody like Phil Foden onto the pitch, the game might have been there to be nicked. It's difficult, isn't it? Because I do believe that this squad want to win every single game, but it did come across like they were happy with a draw. And I think you can flip the question was, was it two points lost or did we actually gain a point uh, instead of dropping all three possibly by losing? And I think if you look at it like that is Manchester City will be much happier with a point than Liverpool would be um, because currently the, the way they've been, they just need to continue to get points. And we've got a game in hand as well that I'm sure they'll be looking to when they can squeeze that in. So for me, I think, they did sacrifice a little bit, but they won't be too disheartened with the performance and with the point. 
Yeah, Chris, I mean, it's we talked about injuries and fatigue for, for City. Um, Liverpool looked dead on the feet in the in the final 10, 15 minutes or so. So, I mean, why, why not throw the kitchen sink at them at that stage? Just a risk, isn't it? Uh, I mean, like we've been saying, they are relentless. They are a machine, but the cogs are starting to fall off a bit at Liverpool in terms of injuries. Uh, both managers made it pretty plain their thoughts on the the schedule and the the subs rules and the the toll that that's taken on uh on the squads but i mean like i say worst case scenario is that we push for the win and we get beat sucker punched on the counter because they've still got dangerous players on the pitch the thing you know you said about foden that was a bit weird because i think we were all crying out for him and you see him getting ready to come on he's standing up just about to take his tracky top off he's getting his last minute instructions and it's hang on a minute we've got about wasn't that 20 minutes ago where is it (laughs) he's sat back down now what's going on so yeah I think Pep was you know it's a bit of a knife edge decision and that was reflected in the fact that he stood him up give him the give him the talk sat him down even Pep was pretty you know 50 50 on whether to actually uh to go for it and in the end just decided that it's more important to be in touching in touching distance of liverpool rather than uh risking your hand and ultimately getting uh getting your knuckles wrapped yeah i mean i just looking at, at the premier league picture obviously city uh, as it stands um still within touching distance of liverpool it, it was a, it would have been a risk to go eight points behind as we said with that game yeah. in hand now it like like they might only be two points behind and i guess that's the key is it chris it certainly is but the trouble is with games in hand uh, you've got to win them and it's nice to have them already under your belt isn't it the points um just remains to be seen there's I don't know, there's so many injuries. You just don't know what's going to happen at the moment. I mean, Aki went down after six minutes for Holland and people were clamouring about the the fixtures and that, but he's not really played much this season because of his other injury. And I don't know, it's, it's just a weird one. Uh, yeah. I don't really know how it's going to, how it's going to fall. It might be a case of the person, the team that wins the league is the one with the, the fewest injuries at this rate, which you know, tends to follow anyway, but even more so this season. <laughs> tends not to be City as well. That's the problem. Well, yeah, injuries, injuries are plenty, aren't they? Um, Kyle, it, it, even at the at the bigger, even bigger picture, um, City might only be three points off the top with, with that, uh, winning that game in hand, which, I mean, you look at their league position, it doesn't look great at the minute because they're down in the mid-table, but it's still, we forget that even though it's, it's mid-November, it's, it's still really early in this season. Yeah, it, it really is. And if you look at, uh, December, we've got nine games. Now, obviously, that's across different competitions, but at the end of December, that will be much more telling when we get to January. When that January transfer window is open once again, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw people coming in that can maybe strengthen the, the squads across the entire Premier League because, as we just said there, I think it will be the team who can be can perform consistently week in, week out not just on the pitch but also within injuries as well who can get players back quicker who can keep players fit consistently throughout the season and we do talk about this game in hand and I've mentioned it and again I'm guilty of doing this you think well it's an automatic win but Aston Villa they're, they're three points ahead of us they're, and they've, they've beaten Liverpool this season exactly so <laughs> in some style as well <laughs> yeah so it's going to be difficult and it 
I think we will see the teams who have got a great foundation coming out on top at the end of this season as well. So it will be your Liverpools, it will be your Manchester Cities. People are talking about Tottenham as well and they might have more of a foundation because of Jose and the kind of thing that he's brought to that squad. But I think we will see again City, Liverpool, Leicester towards the top and even Manchester United as well because they're looking quite poor recently Um, but they have got a good foundation and it seems that they can turn it on so it'll be interesting to see what happens after January I guarantee you and this is I guarantee you why United will will not be will not be in the title picture at least is because they they have this habit of turning up for two or three games and that that, like last season they played City they they beat City three times but then would absolutely phone in a performance against some relegation fodder and and get and, and just look look like the comedy club that they're becoming, so uh, I, don't, oh, don't, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think they'll be there and thereabouts. I'll be honest. Don't get with it, you. don't get it twisted. They might be third or fourth, but they'll be way off City yeah. and Liverpool. I can see those two running away with it again because the consistency is what these two teams bring, and that's what makes it quite exciting, really. Yeah, uh, let's talk about the defense, Chris, because um, Diaz and Laporte have—they uh, they look like they've really gelled. I mean, the only the only Premier League goal that uh, I think uh, has has been let in while Diaz has been on the pitch was uh, was away at West Ham. Oh, Le- away at Leeds, Leeds as well, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So two 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 goals with uh, that that were from open play. He's been absolutely fantastic. I think uh, I've read a player interview the other day. I can't remember who it was, but basically saying that it seems like he's been around the place for a long time. He's just fit right in, hasn't he? He's played pretty much, you know, he's been involved most of the time, absolutely slotted in with a plum. looks an absolute leader as well. Uh, people seem to trust him. Laporte looks like he enjoys playing with him. It's exactly what the defence has been crying out for because we're still looking at a team that hasn't, well, maybe until now, there's a big company-shaped hole still in the team. Uh, hopefully, this has plugged it. It seems to be being nicely filled by uh, by a DS shaped player, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Um, I'm really impressed with him. And just looking at because you know when you when you sign a new player, you, you sort of try and get as much info as you can on him and what you expect. And there's some footage of him for Benfica. There's a team talk he did in the dressing room, and he just absolutely is motivational skills and the the faith that he's the players around him having him it's just it's there to see in that I don't know if uh, it's worth looking up on YouTube because he's just an absolute you know born leader he's exactly yeah. what we need and I, I love him to bits to be honest uh, Kyle did you see the uh, Laporte tweet uh, where he's given him a, a new nickname which is basically just the, the padlock emoji yeah, I think that uh, Eric, as I like to call him now, uh, is very good on Twitter. It he took, doesn't it, mind. It took me ages to work out what Laporte was was talking. Why, why he'd put the door for himself until I realised that in French, uh, Laporte is a door. Oh, yeah, I yeah. actually. Well, I mean, it's so good because if you if you. You see his Twitter, just look at his timeline. He's one of these good footballers that isn't afraid to get involved in the joke and kind of have a bit of a laugh. And that is something that I think. He probably brings to the dressing room as well. Um, and it's just nice to see this partnership because we have been screaming out for a partnership for a very long time. And it's very early days. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. But you look at these two players, I think they really complement each other because Diaz has come in and he, he did it in his interview for Manchester City. He came out and said, I'm here to compete. I'm here to play. I'm here to win. And he seems to have that mindset. So it's nice to see these two kind of gel in so early on. 
Yeah. Um, what do you make of uh, Cancelo, uh, Kyle? Because he's he's quietly, for me, been impressing in the last few weeks. He really has. He seems to have come on leaps and bounds from uh, last season because I think a lot of people were, well, especially Project Restart, I think people were questioning kind of why he was here, another fullback that Pep has bought. He's not playing in that right-back position. He's now playing on the left side. Is it going to work? But the beginning of the season, he seems to have really found some great form and he's hit hit the, the pitch running, really. You see him and Kyle Walker, both of them, what they've managed to do is really step up the game. And I'm not sure if it's because they're pushing each other on um, or, or what it is, but they just seem to have both found a really good form. And I think with Cancelo, he's doing it very quietly, but he's really making an impact on the pitch. Yeah, Chris, it's, uh, the criticism of him is obviously that he's right-footed on the left-hand side, so he, he naturally wants to come inside. But I don't know if you saw the stat recently in terms of, of chances created. He's he's up there with with some of the so, so, some of the league's highest. Yeah, I don't think anyone's really got any questions over him going forward. He you know he bombs up and down, and he he's he seems to be quite adept um, when going forward. The question marks for me have been over his defending, really, and. If you're describing him as, a, him as a fullback, which correct me if I'm wrong, that's what he's supposed to be. That's that's his bread and butter, really. And he's looked a bit dodge in that respect uh, up until the last few games, where I get, well, I, I agree, he has quietly, you know, got his head down and and started to really improve. There's an argument I've been having with a few of my mates um, who say that you know he's, he just can't defend properly, but I think he's definitely made. Um, made that sort of criticism fade away a little bit more recently. And he's looking to, he really has improved. But yeah, going forward, not really got a problem. You know, he's he's a good uh, he's a good attacking fullback, but first and foremost, I want my, want my defenders to be able to defend. And uh, as long as he carries on improving doing that, then fair play to the lad. Well, here's the question, because uh, City aren't scoring a lot of goals at the moment, so certainly not in the uh, in the Premier League, but equally they're not letting in that many either. Um, I was a little bit worried in that opening 20 minutes against Liverpool, as, as Liverpool were just continually piling forward, Chris. But they stood up well to the challenge. And, and you know, it, it, is that down to the back four now being better at one-on-one defending? Or is it more of a team kind of, a, a, kind of a structural solution that they've found? I think it's a bit of everything. And we touched upon it earlier with the partnership between Laporte and Diaz. It just imbues like a whole sort of tr- trust ethic between the lot of them. When you've got that central pairing so solid and they're obviously communicating well, they're able to bark at their compadres at either side and tell them when to tuck in, when not to. What to, I mean, they're all they're all working really well together, and um, I think that that is in no small part due to the partnership in the in the middle there, just exuding conf- confidence throughout the uh, the rest. Yeah, Kyle, the one on one defending, especially you, you know, in a Pep Guardiola team, you're going to have to defend one on one at times. Uh, but I mean, the one that stands out was was Cancelo towards the end of the game, where I think it was Salah that was running through, and he just he, he went down, took the ball off him, stood up, and ran away with it, and it just it was so perfectly timed. Yeah, and I think that we're seeing that more and more now. The the pressure that other other teams, especially teams like Liverpool, will put on you when they are attacking, it's about actually having the the confidence within your own ability to be able to take a second and actually just assess the situation. And sometimes you do watch the games and you're thinking, what are they, what are they doing? But it must be so quick. It must be so fast paced that they have to make split 
decisions in well they have to make decisions in split seconds basically they have to really trust their own instincts and now we are starting to see that in these high pressure situations they are stepping up and actually you look at them and you think I'm quite confident as a City fan that they are going to be able to withstand this pressure. Yeah. Now, there has been a time where it's not been like that at all. And you think, oh, are they going to score every time <laughs> that they attack? But it feels like more and more they are getting that maturity within that defence and the focus is there. And I think that's one huge like compliment we can give for this defence right now. They've, they've seemed to be really focused and they've all given mature performances, which hopefully they can continue throughout the season. Harry's is sponsoring the Blue Moon podcast. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. And they've now released their sharpest ever blades and added a new lubricating strip for an even closer, more comfortable shave. The best part, they haven't raised prices, so replacement blades are still as little as £1.75 each. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. Now, I'm I'm one with a full beard. Chris, you go on and you go in and out of, of having a beard don't you i do yeah I sort of uh let it get to um full kind of you know living in a hedge mode and then show it all <laughs> off and start again why is that is there is there any particular reason mine the only reason i have a beard is because i am supremely lazy well that's it yeah i just like can't really be bothered but it gets to the point where it's actually more hassle maintaining a beard than it is even every day and at that point i just cut my losses and uh you know, wipe the slate clean, so to speak. <laughs> Kyle, you're you're the clean shaven one of the lot. What? So, well, how do you do it, mate? How do you do it every day? Oh, I, I've just got to because I just hate facial hair. I'm one of these that it doesn't quite connect. So I'd rather get rid of it and have none than have this kind of patchy. But it's not even patchy because it just doesn't even get to that point. It <laughs> never has done since being 15. I've just thought, no, I'm going to get rid of it all. Yeah. Are you a Harry's boy? You are, aren't you? Yeah, I've used them before and I can genuinely say, I know this is an ad, but I can genuinely say that um, they are very, very good. Great price and um, they look good. That's a big thing for me as well. The aesthetic of them, uh, they fit nicely in the bathroom. Yeah, and it's it's also the, the blade as well, the actual handle of the blade. I, when I've used it, because I, like I say, I've, I've got a beard, so I don't use it that often, but when I have used it, it's um, it, it just it, it feels comfortable and you can use it quite easily. Definitely, you, you genuinely can and it glides across your, your face. So it's very smooth, very uh, very sharp, and it gives you a very gr- well, very good, uh, comfortable, clean shave. Yeah, well, if you want to start shaving with Harry's today and you can support the podcast in the process as well, uh, you can claim your trial set for £3.95. That will include a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and travel blade cover. And you can get it by going to harrys.com forward slash blue right now. That's harrys.com forward slash blue. Kyle, let me ask you a question. Uh, every time uh, this season that Kyle Walker, uh, the player, has given away a penalty, have you had abuse on social media? I'm quite, I'm quite <laughs> funny because I like to just tweet Kyle Walker abuse incoming. So if I know something's going to happen, I just kind of take, take it on. Uh, head on and just kind of yeah accept it and then I think it was earlier on in the season because he's only given two away and yeah. there's, a, there's a stat around how many he's done in the past 11 years I think it is or something um, but he gave that one earlier on in the season and I just tweeted saying Kyle Walker abuse incoming oh the amount of people tweeting me like <laughs> 
can you not get it in your head? I'm not on the pitch. Like I'm actually on my phone and someone was like, get, you should stick to defending why you on Twitter. And yeah, I was well, like, if, you, if you'd be off your phone, then you might not give a penalty away. <laughs> yeah, mightn't you? That's true. That is true. <laughs> um, uh, Chris, any complaints that, that Liverpool's penalty was given uh, in the big picture? Because there was a foul on Sterling in the build-up. Yeah, I, just, I think Sterling has to be a, a little bit more um, clever there and, you know. And dive. Well, no, it wouldn't have been a dive though, would it? Because he got fouled. And the problem he's got is that he's been barely touched in the past and gone down. And he's got a bit of a rep for that. And you've seen him after that, where he does get clattered, goes down. It's quite often the, the sort of signature foul on Sterling was, it was where he gets into the box, gets the byline, goes to cut back. And, and the player has his feet car- wiped out from yeah, underneath. Yeah, yeah. The, the player carries on sliding, uh, takes his foot out as he's cutting inside. I must have seen that. I mean, we must have seen that four or five times where it just doesn't get given and he's blatantly been taken out. So he's kind of got a bit of a stigma there. Um, I mean, it's interesting. But, you say you say he's got a reputation for having gone down easily, but certainly from watching him at City, I don't, I don't recall a time that he does really. Well, the odd time he does. I mean, I say he's got a stigma. It's not, maybe not as deserved um, as the as the lack of decisions that he gets would reflect. But there's certainly times where I just think, you know, you've gone down a little bit easy there. But I don't think... Uh, he definitely got fouled. He could have gone down. He didn't. But there's actually a phase of play after that where, you know, you need to defend what's actually happened. We can all see that the penalty hasn't been given. He can't... We're not all standing there going, what, so he's not going to give it? And then they get a penalty... It's just uh, you need to get on with it, and the next phase happened, and then they get into the box, and yeah, Walker, uh, he could have, you know, I suppose if you're being hypercritical, you you could put a bit of blame on him, but you can't, you know, sometimes good players go past you and you get caught out, no matter how good you are. It's lose-lose at times for some of these players because Sterling there, if he goes down, people will say that it was soft. People might say that actually he shouldn't be doing that. You're ruining the game or you've gone down, you're diving, you're cheating. But then the other team go up the other end and they get a penalty. And let's not, Let's not get it twisted. I think Marnie knows exactly what he's doing. Yeah. I think smart attackers know exactly what they're doing because if they go down, they, they're going to be... The referee's going to look at them. You've got a fast powerful player like Kyle Walker he's automatically going to be in the wrong in inverted commas because the referee is going to be looking at that situation yeah and attackers know that don't they yeah they do know that and that's why they do go down and it's like a, a tactical foul in, in a way when players give tactical fouls away I hate it because they know what they're doing they'll take the yellow cards but now it is part of the game and it's part of the kind of tactical element of the game that if you know that you can ride out a challenge for so long and then you can go down in the box, well, surely you're going to do it because you're going to want a penalty and yeah. a better chance of scoring. It is remarkable though, Kyle, isn't it? How, just how similar the fouls were on Sterling and on Mane. They were, they were practically identical. Yeah, and that's what makes it slightly frustrating because all of these decisions, it is just a referee or several officials in the VAR room uh, making these decisions and they are still subjective. We saw uh, at the weekend the different VAR officials having a conversation about what looked like one incident. Now, they've all got different opinions on that. So what makes it very difficult is how can you 
how can you differentiate between the two? Well, ultimately, I think it comes down to reputation. People think that Sterling dives and people don't really think that Mane does. If that was Salah, if that was Salah, that would have gone down in the in the city box. Then I think it would have been the same and people go, oh, well, he dives. And I think it is about the reputation of the players that kind of you can't help sometimes think different things for different footballers. Mm. That's true. I mean, I think Mane does dive, uh, and I think he went down soft there. It's good to see him. Uh, if you see him outside the box, he's pretty strong. Keeps on his feet quite well, doesn't he? <laughs> Almost suspicious. Yeah. Um, let's touch on City's penalty that uh, was ultimately missed. But Chris, I, I didn't get what the big fuss about this was. That was just a cut and dry handball. It was like a big old handball, good traditional handball. You know what I mean? I think he could have got his arm out of the way. Um, if he'd have wanted to, it was a sufficient distance away. Um, that that would have been a handball in 2020, in 2010, in 2000, in 1990. That's all. That's always been a handball, hasn't it? I agree. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to you know take your own sort of conscious bias out of the way and say, "Am I just looking this as a, as a City fan?" But for me, yeah, it's handball. Um, you know, just move your arm out of the way, mate. <laughs> simple, <laughs> simple as that, yeah. Um, Kyle, why, why though? Um, I mean, look at the quality of players that City have got on the pitch. Why is it still so difficult for them to stick the ball in the net from twelve yards? Oh, it just had to be Manchester City that missed <laughs> that sort of penalty, and it just feels like it was he was scuffed a little bit. But if there's one player you do trust to hit the ball cleanly and hit it well, it is Kevin De Bruyne. And again, it feels like it was one of those things where it just hasn't gone our way. And one thing I can say is at least he didn't try and pedenka it and miss it in the, the 98th minute. So it's not oh. as bad as one of the penalties that weekend. But well, that, that one was at least on target. It might have gone in. That's true. And there's that the stat that's going around about this penalty because it was the first penalty to miss the target in the Premier League since October 2018. So it's Mares. the first penalty yeah, to miss the target completely since Mares at the reverse fixture at Anfield. And you just think, oh, of course, it was Manchester City who have achieved that there twice. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm sorry to do this to you, Kyle, on your on your first one. But every now and then, I like to surprise a quiz on the panel. So uh, have oh, a guess no. what we're going to do now. Joking, oh mate. no! It's a quiz on City's missed penalties under Pep Guardiola. Yep. Time for a quiz on City's missed penalties under Pep Guardiola. You know the drill by now. Six questions, three each. A point for each correct answer. No offering at cross if there's a wrong answer. Uh, Kyle, pick a pick a number one to six. I'll let you go first. Uh, it's Kyle Walker's number number two. Number two, uh, against which team did Raheem Sterling miss twice from the spot after VAR gave him the chance to retake it for encroachment? Oh my God, I remember this as well. It was against... Oh, oh, oh no. Manchester United? No, it was against Wolves. Wolves away last season. I think I was there actually. (laughs) Oh God. So, uh, swing and a miss. Uh, Chris, what are you having? Uh, six, please. Number six. Which team has faced the most unsuccessful spot kicks from Pep Guardiola's City? Who have they? Who have City missed the most against? Oh yeah, I understood the question, mate. Yeah, yeah, oh, it's all right. I yeah, didn't know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> you're supposed to be able to hear, hear the cogs. We're in. I don't know. I'm going to say Liverpool. Uh, no, it's Tottenham. Wow, I was surprised that by one? that as well. Yeah, Is um, that three. Or? I think it's three. Yeah, uh, Kyle, still nil nil. Pick a pick a number. Number one. Number one, uh, who were the opposition the first time City missed two penalties in the same game under Pep Guardiola? Oh, 
two in the same game, surely it's Wolves. No, it was Stour Bucharest. Oh. All the way back in his first season, Aguero managed to miss twice from the spot and then get a hat trick. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, that's that special. Only Aguero could do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, still nil-nil, Chris. Are you going to break the deadlock? You've got uh, questions three, four, or five available. I'll go for four, please. Question number four. In the Guardiola era, how many penalties have City missed against Liverpool? It is two. De Bruyne oh. and Morris. I wear that out from the other one. So. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that when I was <laughs> pretty when I lucky with the questions. <laughs> so, uh, one nil, Kyle. You need this to equalise. Number three or number five? I will take number five, please. Number five. Which player is responsible for the most missed penalties under Pep Guardiola? Oh. Raheem Sterling? No, it's Sergio Aguero with, oh, an, with a was... remarkable seven. What? Wow. I so I, I can't win. You can't win, but Chris, you can you can take it to 2-0. Uh, question number three is the one that's left. Everyone remembers Kyle Walker going in goal at Atalanta, but who missed a penalty for City that day? Oh. Um, Fernandinho? No, it was Gabriel Jesus. Ugh. So, uh, well done, everyone. 1-0, it finishes. I suppose... That, a, a, that a, was a, a poor performance from me, wasn't it? Sorry about that. A quiz it wasn't about, great for me, to be fair. <laughs> a quiz about missed penalties. I guess it's quite fitting that pretty much every answer was wrong, really. <laughs> In City style, yeah. I mean, I gave you your answer as well when I read out, read out the fact about Riyad Mahrez and Kevin De Bruyne, so... Well done You can have me. the assist. Yeah, assist, <laughs> assist, but Chris wins it. Sorry about that. Please support the show by becoming a backer. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. Chris, you mentioned earlier on um, Phil Foden coming on and then not coming on and then, you know, maybe coming on and then not coming on again. Uh, mm. Guardiola's used only one substitution in this game, but afterwards he's complaining about not having the ability to use five. Uh, yes. what, 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 what do you make in this situation? Well, with a strategist like Pep, I suppose if he's got a choice of five, that kind of exponentially expands the amount of options he's got. You know what I mean? It's like, it gives him like 18 different scenarios he can employ <laughs> rather than five kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know. It's uh, it is a bit of a strange one. It's it, it's kind of set himself up there, hasn't he, without making a sub and then saying there weren't enough subs. Well, only making one. Um, I don't know. It's but, I mean, Klopp, Klopp did it as well and he only used two and one of them was forced through injury at the end. Yeah. I suppose it must be that. It's just like it really does open up the amount of options, the amount of plays that you can kind of work into it. The overall, I mean, you can, you can pinpoint that and say, oh, how can you complain about uh, injuries and subs when you only made a couple yourself? But the overall point does still stand. And we're seeing the injuries uh, pile up that kind of prove that. So I think that might be the exception proving the rule. Yeah. Um, Kyle, it is going to be a long, hard season. Um, would you like to see Guardiola? I mean, Guardiola is in a difficult position, isn't he? Because he can't just make substitutions for the sake of making substitutions because it will affect the game that he's playing in. And that game on on Sunday was on a knife edge at the time. Yeah, and ultimately, that's what it comes down to. This whole five subs thing is about keeping players safe. 
but they've got to look at the 11 players that are playing and then he's got to look at the bench and say, what changes can I make? And actually, when you look at it, how often do managers use three subs, all three? They don't, but it's good to have the options there. And that's why I agree and disagree with this kind of five subs thing because it's a very long season. They're going to be playing games every three days. Plus, we've got these international breaks with friendlies and the, um, the Nations League games as well. So it's a very difficult situation for these managers to be in. And we've heard lots of people talking about it because if Manchester City and Liverpool have access to five substitutes, they're going to have players on the bench and five opportunities to bring on world-class players. If a team like West Brom or Fulham want to bring on five players, they're not going to bring on the same uh, calibre of player that Manchester City and Liverpool can. So I understand that it is an unfair advantage, but also, you've got to look at Pep Guardiola and Klopp and say, look at the 11 they've already got on the pitch. And actually, yeah. when are they going to really need to change nearly half of that 11? When have they ever made a mistake that that's big with the starting 11, that they need to change five of the players? And we are, I mean, we are squeezing what a normal nine-month season into, what is it, six months or so? Yeah, and that's going to play a massive part into it. So ultimately, it comes down to the players' uh, health and safety. But it feels a bit difficult because you look at Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, he was fuming. They had to fly back from Turkey on Wednesday night and then they were playing in the early kickoff on Saturday. What does that come down to? Well, it comes down to TV fixtures and TV schedules. So ultimately, it's about money. Um, and that's what I think the actual conversation is about, are the the FA, the Premier League, UEFA and all the TV companies, are they coming together and looking after the players? I don't think so. So I understand the frustrations. Yeah. Mm. Can I just say as well, with that um, Liverpool City game, I think it's uh, important to point out that, like you said, it is on a knife edge, that game. So that is one of the games where you're less likely to make substitutions because it's such an important fixture and because it was so tight, you know, throughout, it's a draw. Whereas if you win in, say, 3-0 against West Brom, you can... Quite protect... easily change five players, can't you? Yeah, yeah, you can protect players like De Bruyne by bringing him off the last half hour if he 3-0 up kind of thing, whereas that really was an option in, in that game. So it's perhaps an unfortunate um, time for them to voice that opinion about the subs because then everyone goes, oh, but you only made one and it's kind of a situation where your hand's kind of tied in terms of uh, you're not just going to throw three three on with 20 minutes to go because of the nature of that particular fixture. Right, well, we heard on last week's show from former City defender Kit Simons, who was part of the squad that was relegated from the Premier League in 1996. That began the start of a real downward spiral in the late 90s, where the club had manager after manager, an ever-increasing squad size, and another relegation, this time to their lowest ever point. In the second part of our interview, Simons begins by explaining what the club was like as Alan Ball resigned. It was a club in turmoil for so many different reasons. And at the time, I didn't didn't fully understand again, what was going on behind the scenes, but so many players were leaving, the turnaround of players, the turnaround of managers and staff. Um, the whole thing was, it was just a traumatic time at a football club. And it was, um, you know, we, as, as a group of players, you try and just focus about you doing your training and then your match day, but you can't but help but pick up um, the the, vibe, the feeling and the vibe around the club, around the city, and and the pressure of what's going on. And 
I think certainly so many changes and, and all that pressure it, it massively affected us. What was it? What was it like when you heard that that Steve Coppel had left? I mean, he, he was only there for for a month or so, and then and then suddenly he's gone as well. Yeah, that was a massive blow. So, I mean, he came in cops and was was very popular uh, with the players. Uh, we liked the way he worked. Um, again, he seemed like a like a sort of steady pair of hands, a real good guy, someone who I I know quite well. Um, and it was just such a, a blow, and uh, but it sort of summed up what was happening around the club at, at that time, and um, yeah, it was it was it was such a shame because like I say I really felt Steve Steve certainly a very good manager, and I think he would have been good for City um, had he had stayed. And the players were, you know, it was only there six weeks, but we were sort of buying into his methods and and what he wanted to do, um, and we, we we all believed in it. So it was such a, a a real sort of blow and a shame when, when he left. Why? Why do you think, in such a, a kind of a, a short spell there, nobody was able to really get the best out of that squad? Because I mean, when you when you look at some of the players in that squad, there were some good players there. It it was. I mean, at one time, I think during probably during that second season, um, and certainly, I think you're probably halfway through that second season. We're looking trying. We had like fifty odd pros. Um, at one stage, and it was so it was a huge number of players, a massive squad, but it was almost it became and, and you're looking around, it's almost like a mishmash of players rather than an assembled squad where you you know you're buying the right players for the club in the right positions, and it's it was just almost a jumble of players. It looked like so an awful lot of good players, like you say, but then picking a, a good balanced team for what was now the championship was certainly very difficult to do um and it proved difficult for for several managers as we know yeah i mean obviously you, you hinted at it there the the second season uh, again another relegation fight and uh, I, I mean first off the the qpr game at main road what what are your memories of that because that was another extraordinary day yeah i mean they they <laughs> The, the crazy games and the, the sort of tough things that happened almost blend into one, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, because it, it was becoming like a regular thing that just, you know, crazy stuff was happening in and around the football club on a match day, at training, and it was, it was just a bizarre time. Um, and like I say, you, you look at things that happen maybe once, once in your career or something like that. And these, these sort of occurrences and freak goals against us or whatever were were happening all the time on, on quite a regular basis. And it was it was really tough. It, it was it was really hard to 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 deal with it and cope with it and sort of keep positive because that's what you've got to do. Um but that they were real testing trying times, if I'm honest. What what was that main road atmosphere like to play in at that stage? Because I, as a fan, as, as a young fan at the time, I remember that being it was. I remember it being quite hostile at times towards the players. Yeah, well, it was, and it's the closest I've experienced to that uh, since would be when I was working at Sunderland uh, as assistant with, with Chris Coleman, and the, the atmosphere at the stadium. Alike again, great supporters, and they turn up in big numbers. But it was almost there, there was. I suppose you could you could almost call it toxic. It was like it was a real 
tough atmosphere. And like I say, the players, the fans wanted wanted a team to win, but they sort of almost, I think, turned up knowing things weren't going to go our way. And then the players sort of felt that. And we we almost felt things weren't going to go our way as much as, as hard as we tried and as much as we wanted it to. You, you get this niggling thing at the back of your mind. So City fans, like I say, in adversity, were brilliant for turning up in numbers. Um, but the main road atmosphere was, it, it was really tough. And it was strange because then the away support was incredible. But that was a lot more, uh, you got you got more sort of positive vibes for whatever reason from from the away games uh, with with our support, our fans, um, than we did at home. So it's difficult to explain. But like I say, I, I've experienced a similar thing again at, at the Stadium of Light with Sunderland. And um, again, unfortunately, it was the same outcome that ends up, you know, you get, you get on that downward spiral then and, um, you know, unfortunately, ultimately ends in, in relegation. I was going to talk about the uh, the win at Stoke on the final day because uh, was it? Did you know at that point when even though the goals were going in that it that it wasn't enough? Uh, yeah, I think I think as as the game went on, again that, that sort of sums us up. And we go and batter Stoke final day of the season away from home, and you're thinking, what you know, why has that not been happening consistently all season? Because that's that's what we were capable of doing. You know, we had like I said, we had some good players. Um, it's just, like I say, it sort of summed it up, if you like, the fact, you know, even the relegation on, on, from the Premier League, you know, we draw them in Liverpool at home, start with a draw at Main Road, finish with a draw at Main Road, but the, the stuff in between is just not good enough. Um, and that was a, a case with, and it almost rubbed it in, the fact that we won so convincingly at Stoke on the final day, when we were under pressure, we knew we had to win to have any chance. And we go and do our business on that day, but it's not enough. Um, and that, like I say, that did sort of, for me, sum it up a little bit. Um, and it made it, if anything, it made it tougher to swallow and deal with for, for, for me as a, as a player. And I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure for a lot of the supporters as well, you know, you're looking at, at like I say, at some of the players we've got and you're thinking, how can this group of players get relegated from the championship? But like I say, when things... When things are not done right at a football club, um, off the pitch as well, as well as on the pitch, then unfortunately it, it becomes very difficult, and, and and quite often it does end in a, a relegation. We've seen other you know massive clubs, not just not just City, who, who have suffered relegation to to the Championship and, and League One. It, you know, it's, it's happened too many times. If yeah. things are not done right, you know. How did the the move to Fulham come about in the uh, in the following summer? Right. Yeah. Well, I'd um, obviously we'd, we'd suffered relegation, so my contract had had run out. I'd signed a three-year deal when I first first signed for the club. Um, I'd been offered a new contract, um, so I started doing pre-season with City, um, and then sort of a couple of I just had my first baby as well. Some of my oldest girl was 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 just born a couple of weeks earlier, and then the club withdrew the contract offer. Um, which was quite sort of bizarre and unusual thing to happen. Um, and I, it's one of them, listen, it, it probably wasn't the right way to do things. And But also I'm, I'm thinking, then, listen, I'm not going to stay somewhere where I'm not wanted. If they've withdrawn the offer, then, you know, that's it. I'm, I'm going to go. So, yeah, I spoke, I spoke to another club that were in the championship 
that wanted me to sign. Um, and I was all set to sign for them. And then Chris Coleman phoned, phoned me up, who I'd played for Wales under-17s and in the full squad with. So I knew I knew Cookie really well. Uh, he phoned me up, said, listen, I'm, I'm at Fulham. You know, it's obviously League One, but um, we want you to come down and sign. And he put me on the phone to Kevin Keegan. Um, it was with him. Kevin said, listen, I've, I've heard you talking to someone else, a league higher than us. Um, but but just come down and give us the time. Before you make a decision, just come and chat with us. And I went down at Fulham, spoke to, to Kevin, met up with Chris. And it just felt right. Um, like I say, it was less money than this other club had offered me. It was a league lower, but it just felt right and like the right move. And um, yeah, it panned out to, to be quite a good move in the end. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. That was Kit Simons speaking to me about his time at City. If you'd like to hear the full interview, that's on our Patreon page right now for everyone who supports the show. Check out patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. If you're happy to wait until the end of the season, though, the full 25 minute interview will be on bluemoonpodcast.com for free in the summer. Um, now, then, we, we mentioned the international break a bit earlier on, and, you know, the internationals are here. City have already lost Nathan Ake to, uh, to injury as. As Chris said a bit earlier on, after he went off uh, in the Netherlands game with a hamstring problem, it, it also brings forward a, an ask the panel question that we got a couple of weeks ago that we haven't quite answered yet. So, Alexandra Gorton on Twitter asks us: uh, Should we be worried about the number of injuries City have had this season? Is there a case for doing less work in training to ease the pressure on the players? Even throughout Guardiola's time at City, there have always been lots of players injured, and I wonder if he demands too much of them away from a match day. Um, Chris, what's what's your gut instinct on that? I think. We- yeah, you have to be worried about the injuries we've had this season. Um, should we be doing less work in training? I don't really think that's the. I think that's maybe the wrong end of the telescope with this one. You can't really, you know, stop drilling the players and and working on things. Otherwise, they're not going to be as game ready. Uh, you know, in their heads. I think it just purely comes down to the amount of fixtures and the the needless friendlies really don't help. Yeah. Um, I think uh, the only way it's going to actually get changed is is again money. If it starts affecting um, the way teams are able to actually make money, then that might that might have an effect. I don't know. It's really the the FA, the the Premier League. They're not really helping the you know this push towards the European Super League that the certain clubs are are trying to. Um, push for because not being the only country in the you know the only top league in the world that aren't allowing this amount of substitutions it just makes us look daft and the clubs might look at that and say well why should we be you know we might take our ball and play elsewhere with it yeah Kyle I mean there is also the the argument that um, we maybe have an outdated idea of what training is these days because I, I I don't I don't suspect that that when they go into training every day the players are out on the training pitch doing hard running drills all the time you know what I mean a lot of it is tactical work and a lot of it is video work that sort of thing yeah and I feel that that's the the common misconception from football fans is that footballers are in eight hours a day uh, training I was actually listening to a podcast early this morning with uh, uh, Nader Manua I was listening to his with the second one with Joe Hart yeah and Joe, Joe Hart says I'm going to break the kind of 
the mystical illusion that we're in all the time. They train for an hour a day, he says. <laughs> so you kind of think, right, an hour a day for professional athletes with some of the best facilities in the world, with some of the best staff in the world as well, they know what their bodies are capable of and they are assessed so regularly that actually the staff are across it, the stats that they have from the training sessions, they know exactly what they should be doing and how to recover and how important the recovery is as well. What I think it is, and genuinely, is actually the matches and how much of a strain that's putting on the body. If you are playing two or three matches at a time in a week, or even for Manchester City, there was a, there was a period last season where they had two matches in 46 hours, yeah. was it? That's that's not healthy for the body. That's not healthy for anyone, really, especially for elite athletes. Mm. You've got to look like at that. Said about LeBron James, didn't he? Sorry, exactly. No, exactly. And I think that actually, when you look at these elite athletes, you go, "Are we protecting them?" No wonder they're getting injured because mm. the England team might be flying off to uh, to Germany to play this game tonight. I don't even know if they know if it's going to be at Wembley <laughs> or in Germany. I don't think yeah. people know where the game is going to be. That is that for real? I didn't trouble. know that. Yeah, yeah they're, they're still speculating whether it can go ahead because Iceland might not be able to travel to the UK, so they might have to meet in Germany and play. Now, you think of it and you go, well, that's extra travel, that's extra um, fatigue on the body. They're not staying in their own beds, they're staying in hotels, and it's a very lavish lifestyle. <laughs> let's, let's be honest, we'd all probably give up a lot to be a footballer, but it does take a toll, and we have to remember that at times. Yeah, I mean, the the interesting thing is, given the schedule and and and, uh, and how packed this season is, should we play in this minute? Should we be playing the internationals as 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 frequently as we are? But also, given the pandemic, should players be travelling across the world like this? Oh, it's it's so difficult because the easy answer is no. But then, if that means you can't play in the Champions League, if that means you're not playing as many games in a season, well, how can you tell Carabao that their sponsorship isn't worth as much as somebody else's? How can you tell these massive companies? Again, it boils down to money. The League Cup seems like the one domestic competition you'd get rid of. Uh, listen, Kyle, you can't be coming no. on here and talking about uh, talking about getting rid of the League Cup. No, 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 no. No, no the people will <laughs> say and think that actually that's the one you should get rid of, but you can't. You you can't because if you get rid of it for one year, the amount of revenue and money that that is lost for the FA, that's lost for Wembley, that's lost for Carabao, it will not happen. And what? as a Manchester City fan, that's what? how you're going to win. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Chris, should we? I mean, the other question is: Should we be trying to finish this season by May in order to fit in Euro twenty twenty? Okay, it'd be in twenty twenty one, but it'd still be called Euro twenty twenty. But should we be trying to cram all this in? Because even like even after this packed season, the players are then all going to jet off and have a, an international tournament in the summer. There's no real way around it other than what's scheduled. Because, like we've just said, you can't just chop one out. One of the ways to to help it is to give us more opportunities to protect players by upping it to five substitutions. <laughs> uh, comes back to that, doesn't it? Yeah, it needs doing. Uh, it's making us look a bit daft yeah. uh, as a country, really, and we're quite capable of doing that in various other ways. <laughs> I think as well, it's common sense. I mean, why did UEFA announce and confirm the dates for Euro 2020 as soon as the other competition was uh, rescheduled and cancelled? I mean, it starts on Friday, the 11th of June. They put those dates in place and they confirmed them. 
So that means that all the other governing bodies, the FA, the Premier League, they have to get their competition started and finished. They had to finish 10 games for Manchester City in Project Restart, then do a whole other campaign with 38 games before... Well, I mean, and the FA Cup, they've got to have that done before the 11th of June. That's set in stone. There was no, doesn't feel like any communication between the two. It's just common sense. Why yeah. would you set something, a target for everyone to meet when we're in the middle of a global pandemic? Yeah. I don't why, know. Why prioritise competitions that haven't started yet? Yeah, why, exactly. And, and, not, and not finish the ones that you've got going on. Exactly. Right, so it's time to hear from Howard Hawking. He's back talking about the pointlessness of the internationals. get all the key slots yep it's another international break it's another international farce with news breaking that england may not be able to play iceland in england due to quarantine laws with the covid riddled mink population ravaging denmark where iceland played days before they face england we have to question what is going on i mean seriously what is going on and to wonder after city and liverpool dragged their sorry asses through a lethargic second half just how beneficial a two-week break for footballers would have been right now. Never mind, we will never know, as the smaller federations need these games, apparently, for the cold, hard cash it brings. And obviously, there's no way that UEFA could dip into its billions or gold bullion to help out. Roberto Mancini, remember him? Yeah, well, he won't be managing Italy's games in the next week, as you may know, he too has COVID. Most of his players await test results to see if they will be in isolation for two weeks after positive tests at six Serie A games. Remember Eddie Dzeko? He's got it, as have two Czech players. Only eight German players were free to train on Wednesday. And on and on. Also, there is this tendency for us fans to hear about a player testing positive for COVID. And our first and last thought is to calculate the consequences of the player being out for a fortnight, as if they had tweaked a hamstring. But they are human beings who can be affected by this virus just like anyone else. Ilke Gundogan has commented just recently this week on how it is affecting both physically and psychologically to have had the virus, which makes you wonder why we are treating like cattle, flying them around the world, often for a friendly match. Anyway, because there is so little to engage in right now, having blanked any more news from the US until the what's it called wannabe Mussolini finally sods off for good, I'm thus compelled to think about England, and I can't get away from the fact that Gareth Southgate, with every passing week, is quite simply persuading me that he's not very good at his job after all. Now, of course, he's somewhat caught between a rock and a hard place trying to entertain us during a global pandemic in a competition that does not need to be played and in friendlies that defy belief that they exist. But there is a way he could help us right now. And by that I mean, use some of the brightest and most exciting attacking options we have had in the generation or more and go for it. It's the nation's league. Make England enjoyable. But no, this is not what we will experience this week, no doubt, or next. He will play all the seven right-backs in the squad, look for solidity, and we will be bored most of the time. He will adopt different rules for different players according to how important he considers them, as we saw with Maguire and Foden. He will fast-track Bellingham whilst ignoring established informed Premier League players. His logic has dribbled away to leave you wondering what it is precisely that he offers. But in a way, playing international friendlies as players drop like flies in the midst of a global pandemic is the perfect embodiment of 2020. It fits. In a year where little makes sense, why not organise a friendly between England and New Zealand, which is then cancelled and is swapped to Ireland instead? I mean, what's the worst that can happen apart from another six muscle injuries, 25 players having to isolate and seven positive Covid tests? 
Also that perhaps the most pointless England internationally in decades can be beamed into your living room. And it's live. This is a bizarre season. Nothing makes sense. It still amazes me how so many wish to analyse this season and matches as if everything is normal. Nothing is. Performances yo-yo all over the place on many sides. Players are dropping like flies as I've said. Some results make little sense and do not follow form. It's brutal and a season of survival. Prospering is a distant dream. It's about getting by. Which is just an extra reason why we don't need these internationals. But let's look at the domestic scene. Or around Europe, the domestic scene. Real Madrid lost 4-1 to Valencia at the weekend, conceding three penalties in the process. Now imagine how incompetent you would have to be to concede three penalties in one match. Meanwhile, Leeds outclass Aston Villa 3-0, then lose 4-1 twice on the bounce, whilst Villa go to the Emirates and win 3-0. City ship 5 to Leicester, then concede 4 in 9 games. Liverpool ship 7 at Villa, but that remains their only loss. City's loss to Leicester is their only loss. Everton are the best team in the league one week and back to old Everton the next. In a way, the same for Wolves, who will suddenly become bad again. The suspicion is that eventually the cream will rise to the top. But none of us could guarantee it. And maybe the cream is already at the top in these strangers of seasons. And as Joe Gomez becomes the latest Liverpool player to succumb to injury, what the season has also provided us, unfortunately, is yet another Liverpool narrative. Liverpool have experienced significant injuries this season. And they have, like others, have got a right to be angry at a schedule that's led us to this point, that disregards the well-being of players in the name of entertainment and income. But they're only experiencing what other teams have had to enjoy in the past. And those teams, especially City, were not given a get-out clause should they underperform. They were expected to get on with it and still win things, due to their squad depth and wealth. And that's what Liverpool need to do, and may well do. Though in this strangest of seasons, it's close to impossible to predict where this season leads us. I guess we'll just have to try and enjoy it as best we can. But I draw the line at England versus Ireland in an empty Wembley Stadium, or England versus Iceland in Albania, days before many players are back in Premier League action. Time, I think, to catch up on succession and the bake-off, because this isn't football as I know it. Hello, my name is Gerard Weekens, a former player of Manchester City, and you're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. Hear all of our City interviews on our website, bluemoonpodcast.com. That was Howard Hawking. Uh, we're going to finish with Ask the Panel. This is the bit of the show where you send in your questions. At Blue Moon Podcast on Twitter is the best way to do it, but we can also take it on email, uh, bluemoonpodcast.com. You'll find an email form on there. And you can search for us on Instagram as well. Just search for Blue Moon Podcast. Uh, Darren Watson is first up from Twitter. He says, uh, with the possibility of both Messi and Ronaldo being available next summer, assuming finance isn't an issue, would you take either, neither, or both? Um, and this, I thought this was a nice question to put out to uh, to Twitter. So uh, the results, um, I- I'm guessing maybe because of his Manchester United connections, but uh, Cristiano Ronaldo had 4% of the vote. If you're only going to sign one and you want to sign Ronaldo, then it's it's 4% of you. Uh, 58% wanted to sign Messi only. Uh, neither was a, was 20% and both was 18%. So kind of a, a real, real split decision, but definitely favouring Messi. Um, Kyle, if you could sign one or both or, or neither, what would you go for? I mean, Messi, because of the history with him and Pep, I believe he is the best footballer that we've ever seen. Um, I do think Ronaldo is the greatest athlete we've ever seen in football, but I think Messi's the better footballer. That's going to cause some controversy and debate. (laughs) But um, I mean, it's difficult because if I actually think of it, none of them. Just let them both retire at their clubs and kind of get on with it and don't, 
don't tarnish the legacy that they've created. If Messi comes to the Premier League at his age and he doesn't succeed, people are going to speak ill of him and I don't want that. So if that means City not getting him, I'll take it. Oh, fair enough. Um, Chris, would you either, neither or both? Well, there's arguments for all three, isn't there, really? Um, like, how old how old's Messi now and Ronaldo? Ronaldo's 35 and yeah. Messi, I think he's 33. 33 is, uh, yeah, he's slightly older than me. And a little bit more skillful. A tiny, bit, <laughs> tiny bit more skillful. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't want to comment on my own ability, really. But you know, we play we play different positions. It's not like it's not. You yeah, can't compare it's it. not fair to compare. Probably about equal. Um, <laughs> you just yeah. have a beard, though, oh, so maybe you know that, similar similar categories with that one. That is true. I mean, all, all things considered, Chris, there's no counterfactual. You can't say that I would never have achieved Messi's uh, what he's achieved if I did, if I played attacking midfield. Oh, I can. <laughs> uh, let's let's leave that one as a potential yeah you might have because uh, you know I'm I'm trying to be polite fair um, enough but <laughs> I bet he, I bet you're a better goalkeeper than he is oh I don't know about that <laughs> yeah maybe you're right actually but you've, anyway, seen, you've seen me play it's alright <laughs> well this is what I mean but um, anyway I don't know Messi he's going to be 34 um, next season Pfft. The thing is with Messi, if we're looking a little bit jaded in January and he's available then, I'd, I'd maybe take him then because he might just give us a lift if we're neck and neck with Liverpool, looking like we need something a bit, uh, you know, like uh, who, did, who did Mancini bring in? Um, um, Pizarro. David Pizarro. Pizarro. <laughs> the best names to say in a man accent ever. Uh, Pizarro, he was, he was <laughs> similar to that. Something to steady the ship, give us a bit of an injection. I'd give him, um, I'd, I'd take him in January. But other than that, I just don't think, you know, because he's the sort of person that where he goes, you expect a team to be built around him. I don't think a team at our level is going to be building a team around um, a 34, 35 year old if he came next summer. Ronaldo, he's just too. United for me to get around, even though he's in tip-top shape and probably will be for a few years. Yeah, I'd gonna, I'd say Messi in January or, or not at all. Um, so pretty much neither. Although both, imagine the imagine the the shirt revenue if we got both. I uh, I guarantee you that that's the first time that David Pizarro has ever been compared to Lionel Messi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Another first. Another first for this podcast. Uh, <laughs> final question for this week comes from Kev Ramsbottom on Twitter. Uh, this isn't to say that I miss the bad old days, but do you think there's something lost now that every game means something for City? I never used to care when we'd lost as long as we were safe in the Premier League, but now even a draw like the ones at West Ham or Leeds have the potential to ruin my weekend because we need every point we can get for the title. Um, Kyle, and it, th- there is something in this, isn't there? Because uh, you can't relax as a City fan until the until the game's won. There is, and it's weird to say that, isn't it? Because, I mean, the good old days, if we can call that, or the, the bad old days, as Kev has put it. I mean, I used to go into school on a Monday, Manchester City had just been beat by Ipswich, and I'd get bullied because Manchester <laughs> United were winning the treble or something. So um, I, I kind of, I think... Kyle, don't be ridiculous. Like, enjoy the highs of football that you actually get to see Manchester City in the Champions League and winning Premier Leagues and stuff that you never imagined. But 
when we Manchester get, we do get irrationally angry about it all though, don't we? Well, like that is it. When Manchester City are getting beat or we're drawing, I get these weird butterflies that I never used to get when I was a kid watching Manchester City because it was normal, and I really, really do not enjoy it because I can't control it. It's 11 people out playing football and the team I love are getting beat and they can't do anything about it because the ball just won't go in the back of the net for them. So it's a very weird feeling that when everything is on the line, that Leon game where I just genuinely thought Manchester City were winning the Champions League and it was ours, it was heartbreak after because I genuinely, it's like someone had broken up with me and I had all these emotions running through my body and I thought, what am I doing? Why don't we just support a team that don't get to these heights because you'll never <laughs> suffer the, this, the downs? Yeah. I, the, the, the strange thing is though, Chris, um, there is a tendency to look back at that time when City were crap with with rose tinted glasses, isn't there? And like like it, it wasn't all it, it wasn't as good as we remember it in that sense. There was a lot of anger around City at times. Yeah, I don't remember it being good, um, but I also don't remember it being um... stressful. No, um, well, no, it was just as what well, the point I'm making is just as stressful then. I mean, every game means more now because if we lose, we might not be winning the league. But even if it was mid-table, we'd be away at West Ham or wherever. And if we'd, I'd be absolutely, you know, absolutely heartbroken if we'd lost against a, a mid-table team. If I'm listening to it on the radio, or as as used to be, I used to be just as gutted then as I am now. The only times I'm not really asked at the moment is the, you know, the Champions League group games. I still avidly watch them, uh, you know, from beginning to end, but... Yeah, that's the only real flat feeling I get, and I suppose it is a more of a more of a, a gut wrencher when you do have a lot hanging on it. If it is like a semi final, like Kyle was saying about uh, the uh, quarter final or the Leon game, for instance, that is more gutting. But in terms of league games, I was always gutted when we lost. I was just gutted more often. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I, I also wonder how much of it is it, it, it's also because the games are now more accessible than they used to be. Like we, we can we can pretty much watch every game of cities now, where we never used to get that luxury. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I mean, you always had access to it in some way, even if you're sitting watching teletext uh, with a brew pacing around the, the the room, wearing a groove in the carpet. You know, you still get that same anticipation and when when the score changes you still jump just as high and you still sink just as low if it goes to the other team i just uh i don't know i don't i mean that's kev's prerogative and he says he never used to care when we'd lost as long as we were safe um it's about getting safe though wasn't it yeah well yeah i even if we were safe i mean i i used to hate losing i, I still do but it's, it's those those big games where the the emotional investment is is that much more. So, can I just I ask you, if, you in that way. if you've always hated losing, um, how did you end up as a City fan in in the eighties <laughs> and nineties? Well, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I just ended up going to. You know, my dad took me to Main Road, and it just kind of consumed my soul. It just you know eats you up, doesn't it? Sometimes it's, it's hard to put your finger on what happens. You, you're at that age where, well, I personally speaking, I was at an age where. You, you sort of, you know, you're learning your way in life and you get exposed to this massive sort of stimulus and the the smell, the sound, the sights of it. It's just like, just a, a feast for the senses, isn't it? It just draws yeah. you in and uh, whether you like it or not, no turning back. 
Well, here's a, here's a question to finish then, Kyle, um, because I, I, I'm wondering if having watched City lift pretty much every well every domestic trophy under Guardiola in eighteen nineteen, um, can it ever get better than that? Is that is that, that is that it? If City completed football at that point, can you ever have a season that is better than that one? Oh, it's it's difficult because we've not won the Champions League. So until we're in that Champions League final and we're winning three 0 in the eighty six minute, I mean. I bet that'll feel very good. But from what we've experienced, will it ever get better than the Aguero moment? I'm not too sure because a lot of football fans will never understand what it was like for Manchester City fans. And it's interesting because I have this conversation a lot with uh, one of my friends who's a United fan. And he just thinks that we're kind of romanticising how Manchester City were. And actually, I genuinely never expected to win a a Premier League. I I never expected to go on a 10-game winning run, never mind winning uh, an entire (laughs) league. So I think the the highs we've experienced have been so incredible because the lows were so low, especially growing up as a Manchester City fan. Will it get... Will it ever get any better? Yeah, I think that there will be a time when it will get better, when maybe we do win the Premier League again. Because, I mean, when you have a hard-fought battle and it goes down to the final day and Liverpool have pushed you all the way and we ended on uh, 98 points and they only got 97, I mean, that was just as exciting. So that could happen once again and we never know. Um, I'm not sure if it'll be this season, but maybe in a few seasons to come or whenever it is we do win that Champions League. Yeah, lovely note to end on. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Blue Moon Podcast. So thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to help us out, then don't forget a simple rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, you know the drill. Uh, That can help spread the word. We've also got a Patreon page as well where you can get a bonus podcast every week. We always say it's at least 15 minutes on a random City topic, but this season they've all been pretty much half an hour and they're mostly looking at players uh, from City's past that are linked to the opposition teams each weekend. This week, though, with the international break, we're looking towards those who've played for City and one of their Champions League group opponents so Porto, Olympiacos or Marseille and for one week only it's an hour long special with three special guests one from each of those teams and it's entirely free as well so just go and have a look at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast for more details thanks to my two guests this week Chris Higginbottom time for having us and to Carl Walker but not that one Yep, not that one, but better at podcasts, maybe? <laughs> well, we'll f- we're yet to find out, that's the thing. <laughs> uh, but I'll let you know as soon as we do. Um, I'll be back next week to look ahead at the games with Spurs and Olympiacos, so I'll see you then. That was the Blue Moon Podcast. Please support the show patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast.